What's it like when one of your friends on death row is led away to be executed? You have a prepaid call from an inmate at the California State Prison, San Quentin. This call and your telephone number will be monitored and recorded. You're almost constantly assuming that someone's about to try and kill you. You're surrounded by 700 plus murderers. Welcome to Death Row Diaries, the only podcast co-hosted live from Death Row. Please take the time to find us on Facebook, Death Row Diaries, and Instagram, Death Row Diaries. Follow us and get updates on our latest shows. And don't forget to rate and review the show on iTunes or whatever platform you're listening on. David Edwin Mason was born December 2nd, 1956. According to a probation officer's report, he was raised strictly fundamentalist by Pentecostal parents. From an early age, his behavior was uncontrollable. He would set fires in the house, cut, choke himself. He held a knife to his infant brother as if to stab him. He assaulted his peers at school. In retaliation, his parents beat him, locked him in a room, the windows boarded shut, subjected him to verbal abuse. And at 14, they gave him up. After killing six people, he was found with a cassette tape on his person. He called it his epitaph. On this tape, he confessed in great detail to many of his murders. He also said, I know I'm going to die, and I don't care. In a way, I'm looking forward to it. He was executed by gas in San Quentin State Prison August 24th, 1993. Uh, welcome to Death Row Diaries. I am Matt Ralston. And I'm William A. Nogueira. Uh, today's episode is about David Edwin Mason, the third person executed at San Quentin pr- Prison after the uh, Proposition 7 that reenacted the death penalty. Uh, and he's also the last person executed by gas at San Quentin. Right. So I think last time we were kind of talking about the the vibe inside the prison when when you you know it became this kind of harsh reality that they were executing someone. Um, was was that feeling kind of palpable with uh, David? Edwin Mason. Yeah, with David, it was a little bit different. And uh, he is actually the first person to volunteer to be executed. He weighed all his appeals, and he wanted to go forward with his sentence, which was to be executed. And so it was a little bit different mood, although they were executing someone, that he chose to go ahead with it, uh, with a kind of a different vibe. 
and, and by the way, just for general knowledge, uh, he was known on death row as Dancer. That was his nickname. And, um, <laughs> and it wasn't because he danced. It was because he actually had one leg about three and a half inches shorter than the other leg. So he limped. He used these really big boots that would even off his stride so he could walk normally. And he picked up the name Dancer. I was going to ask, and I'm not making light of it, not like a cheap joke, but he was a homosexual. So it wasn't like a derogatory towards his sexual orientation or anything. Well, it, yes and no. In prison, it's kind of a weird thing. Like in gangs, you get nicknames for the funniest reasons, being called Joker or being called Smiley because you smile a lot or, or because you don't smile at all or being called handsome because, well, because you're not good looking, you're actually horrible looking. So with, with Mason, um, the name Dancer was because, of course, he couldn't dance and because of his short leg and because ballet dancers in, in prison, that's kind of a feminine thing. So, of course, they that nickname kind of came from there. Interesting. It's such a trope the, that these kind of, you know, murderer guys have have some kind of deformity or or something that leads them to be really self-loathing, right? Like that's because I'm looking at his photo and he's a you know he's a pretty good-looking guy. He's got a full head of hair for a a guy in his late 30s, and um, but I guess not being able to walk, you know, that might lead people to have rage against the world or something. I'm not trying to play armchair psychologist, but you do see that, don't you? Well, yeah, it's it's, it's a very good observation. And, and the truth of the matter is you're right on point because his upbringing was kind of confusing for him. He came out of a, of a house that was very religious, Pentecostal. Um, his parents are strict. And at a very early age, he's diagnosed with borderline personality disorder with suicidal features. That's a lot of words there that most people don't understand. But... You can tell that, you know, in those days, in the 50s, 60s, 70s, when he was growing up, being a person of the LGBTQ community wasn't easy. It was a difficult situation. And, of course, I'm sure that some of his rage, some of his anger came from that and from the fact that he was deformed. And I'm sure that played a big part in uh, people teasing him when he was a kid. Look, I mean, all of us have been teased, but when you have those kind of shortcomings, no pun intended, uh, you get really victimized. So from a very early age, he began um, striking out. He, he lit fires. He assaulted a number of other children. And by the age of 14, his parents had basically made him a ward of the state. Yeah, it says that, I mean, this is just Wikipedia, but, you know, he was beat pretty severely from a young age. Um, his parents would lock him in a a dungeon basically with boards on the windows and <clears throat> says they put soiled underwear on his head. I mean, just pretty gnarly stuff. Um, you mentioned that he de essentially declined his appeals and volunteered to be executed. He had no last words. He requested ice water as his last meal, basically, if you want to call it that. Um, this call and your telephone number will be monitored and recorded. So I'm, I guess I'm picturing kind of a 
quiet guy. I mean, what was his kind of demeanor in the yard? Was he fairly uninteresting, or I guess I'm, I'm, I don't know if I'm reading that in. Well, just I, yeah, I mean, I had the, I guess you want to call it the privilege, or at least the front row seat to observing him in the yard. He spent a number of years working out right next to me. Um, and there was kind of a rotating um, workout people in my area because they always went to the hole for weapons or scouting somebody. And, you know, if you, if you didn't know that he was gay, you never would have known it. He didn't uh, in any way, shape, or form uh, show any feminine qualities or he showed any attraction to the men. And he actually had a girlfriend for many years that came to see him. So, uh, and, and of course, you're not, it's not the most healthy thing in the world to show those kind of tendencies on death row or so many uh, predators. So, but yeah, he was, he was kind of quiet, kind of a serious guy. Um, but one thing I did notice about him, and I speak this only by experience because I watched it. This isn't me, you know, reading this in a book or, or reading it somewhere else. And I guess that's the unique perspective that I have on all the 13 guys who are going to features. I knew every each one of them. And with David Mason, over the years, as he got closer, and he, believe me, he wasn't close by any stretch of the imagination to being executed. He chose to be executed. And towards the last year of his life, he made several comments, kind of that he understood what he did wrong. And it weighed on him. He, he, he expressed remorse. He expressed... You know, a lot of things that you normally don't hear from guys in prison. And and this isn't me, in any way, stretch of the imagination, making this guy out to be a good guy. He killed six people, but he understood the gravity of what he did. And that's the reason that he chose to accept that sentence without a fight and go to his doom. That's interesting. That I, I guess I'm a little cynical, but when I read about him essentially volunteering to be executed, I'm picturing almost a guy trying to get attention as some kind of masochist or I, I don't know, like, cause I just, I don't trust these types of people with good reason and, and their motivations. But so that's interesting that you say that he, he actually just felt horrible about these six people that he'd killed. Yeah. I mean, he had, um, a sober side to him that I observed and I watched him work out with people and talk to his workout partners and the type of person that he became. And, and so you're always thinking about these things, especially now with today's, you know, scientific field, understanding brain development and um, what makes a person tick. And we, we can't ignore the fact of how young he was at one point when he went into the state of California as a ward of the state. And by age 21, uh, he stabs a, a store clerk with an ice pick, of all things. He gets 36 months in prison. And within a few months, six to eight months after he's released, he picks up all these murders. Um, he's still very young at the time. He's under the age of 25. And today, of course, we, we know that brain development in males before the age of 25 is, well, it's not existing. You probably would be a, a pretty good barometer of that you did some pretty dumb things before you were you know 23 or 24 years of age and um so i think at after being almost the age of 36 he understood it kind of dawned on me 
what took place, why he did it, and if he felt he deserved that type of sentence. At least that's what he expressed. Yeah, I was so dumb at that age. I was I was showing my girlfriend a uh, Instagram video, and this was um, someone in a sports car was driving about I don't know thirty miles an hour, and a guy, teenager, did a flip. Um, he jumped just as the car was arriving and did a flip and escaped death by, I mean centimeters, and I said to my girlfriend, "Yeah, I was I was dumb when I was twenty you know, 1920, but not, not that dumb. And she was like, well, that's not something to be proud of. It's a pretty low bar, you know, but it's true. <laughs> I mean, we were all complete yeah. idiots at that age, especially boys, you know? Yeah. And, and just because you're impulsive doesn't make an excuse that you to commit all these crimes or anything, but you kind of understand the culpability and how much, how culpable a person is from reacting to certain situations where, an otherwise adult male would have thought, hey, I'm not going to do that, or that's not a good idea, or the consequences behind that behavior. So with him, it just it just at one point dawned on him, and he felt he couldn't live with himself. And as I said, he expressed that a number of times very near me, and I, I really made no comment to it. I just kind of listened to it. I was, I was very young at the time, and uh, when they executed him, I was still you know, my 20s, and um, I just didn't feel it was a, a place for me to make any comment, but I, I knew what he was going to do, and it scared, I mean, honestly, it scared me. It brought the death penalty even closer to me because this guy worked out five feet from me. So how old was he when, how long did you know him? Like, how old was he when you first met him, and, and then I guess you stopped knowing him when he was 36 years old, August 24th, 1993. That's when he was... Uh cast to death, but how how long did you know him? Since, nine, since May of 1988. Mm-hmm. That's when I, I arrived on um, the East Block Yard. I spent um, some time in the Adjustment Center when I first arrived here. So I met him in May, middle of May. Voice call and your telephone number will be monitored and recorded. May of 1988. You have 60 seconds remaining. They're on a roll, aren't they? Uh, then he, of course, was executed on August 24th, 1993. Uh, but yeah, I mean, it was quite a few years. And we're back. Um, so I want to get to his crimes, but I'm curious, just this popped into my head, with his having this gimpy leg, um, how does it work like that in the yard um, in terms of, I mean, would you be picked on or is there some compassion like you don't want to i mean you wouldn't beat up a guy in a wheelchair or maybe they would i don't know but how did that work to his advantage or disadvantage if anything it's actually funny to say that because that would be the last thing i would think about um in prison there's always an equalizer it equalizes everything and i'm not bringing this to the forefront uh, because it's something i like to talk about but the equalizer in prison is violence and the instrument of violence is a big knife. And that's how guys in prison, you don't make fun of people in prison um, unless you're thinking about dying or trying to die because all these guys on the yard at that time, there was probably 290, 300 guys on death row were all in one big yard. So every one of those guys was here for at least one murder. Uh, And unless you were a serial killer that, 
you know, you're on a protective custody yard, all of these guys could kill. So, no, he, he walked around the yard, and you never would have known that he had a shorter leg by just watching him walk because he had a shoe that was, the sole was thicker than one shoe the other, so he, he, it evened out. But, yeah, that would not be a good idea, at least in my opinion, to try and pick or make fun of somebody. I'm sure someone joshed with them and they, they were good with him or close to him. But, yeah, that doesn't happen in prison. At least not in like level four yard where there's killers. It may happen in a level one or a level two prison where guys do a lot of playing around. Right. I mean, I guess it, I was also thinking just in terms of it might be easier to beat him in a fight because he's kind of limited but at the same time i think most of those fights are kind of just like you described in your book escape artist available on amazon um just kind of one or two second one hit you know you're 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 out type of thing yeah there's you don't do a lot of fighting in prison because you have two things to worry about the guy you're fighting against pull, pull a knife out and stab you to death and the guy on the gun rail with a Mini-14 or an M1 that could shoot you in the back of the head and kill you. So, yeah, there's not a lot of fighting in prison. There's usually a weapon against another weapon, and that's how usually things are settled. So um, guys don't normally just pick on people. It's just I mean, there is victimization. guys taking people's stuff. That happens. But uh, Dancer was not what you would call a pushover. He was a serious guy, and, and, and if you attempted to harm him, I'm sure the consequences behind that would be grave. Right. Okay. So, yeah. he's. I get, I get what you're saying. Um, I want to get to his crimes, but before, it says he has six victims, I guess technically five, and they're not sure about the six, but, you know, obviously six. Um, <clears throat> there seems to be some debate about, like on Wikipedia, for example, it labels him as a serial killer. And I think you had intimated that you had some issue with that label. Could you talk about that? Sure. Um, so let's put the cards on the table. The FBI uh, categorizes a serial killer as someone who kills three more people, sometimes in conjunction with another killer. Uh, but there's always a bit of gratification, sexual gratification, emotional gratification, Dancer, or David Mason, in my opinion, and I've spent 30, 40 years observing serial killers and studying them, is not a serial killer. He killed six people, but those people were killed because in the same type of form that a hitman kills. A hitman's not considered a serial killer, and he would probably take issue with you calling him a serial killer. Um, he killed for money, for gain. Um, and one of the instances he killed because his male lover gave him herpes on purpose. So there's always a good reason and there was never sexual issues during or after the crime or anything. So according to what you said, that he's listed as a serial killer, that diagnosis is incorrect. And again, um, I would challenge anybody to argue the point differently. They just see six killers, six, six murders, and okay, he's a serial killer. He's not. And the, the killings and his murders do prove my point, um, which you said you want to discuss, and I'll be happy to discuss those and kind of prove my, my diagnosis of 
or theory as to why he's not a serial killer. Yeah, it seems like he would murder people for somewhat paltry amounts of money. Um, but, you know, occasionally, you know, a few thousand dollars. I think he got like $10,000 on one of them. I don't know. I, this is probably bad podcast material, but why not plan one bank robbery well? You know, why crisscross the country murdering people for, you know, you don't you don't even know what's in the register. Like, what kind of mindset is that? Is, are, were drugs involved with him? Uh, yeah, I mean, he, uh, I mean, he smoked pot and stuff like that. I'd seen him do that a couple of times. He wasn't what you call a hardcore drug user. Um, so with with this particular guy, because we know that guys crisscross the country killing and they're basically serial killers. But this guy, he did everything within basically one county. One of the murders was outside the county, and that's why he wasn't charged with that murder, because he was being charged in, I believe, Alameda County, which is the city of Oakland. Um, so, yeah, that's a good question. Why not just rob a bank? And I think that with him, it was he had a particular type of victim, and that's why I believe that some people would consider him a serial killer or try to at least put him in that box, because there were usually elderly people that he killed. I think that was more opportunity. He felt comfortable that he could overpower them easily. Um, but for, let's take, for instance, he gets out of prison, and six months later, on March the 6th, 1980, he goes to a person's house, and I hope I get this name correct because I'm horrible with names, Joanne Picard, and she's 73 years old. She had known Mason since she was a little kid. Um, she had hired him on a number of occasions to do odd jobs. And just suddenly... She invites him in, you know, he has uh, uh, already thoughts in his head of doing this because he, he brings an ice pick with him and she shows him her, her coin collection and kind of runs down what kind of alarm system she has and panic buttons. And at a spur of a moment, he pulls out the ice pick and threatens. This call and your telephone number will be monitored and recorded. When she tries to um, set off the alarm, he chokes her into uh, unconsciousness and then ties her up. And it, it doesn't seem like he's thinking too much, at least from what I've read, because he then figures out that she can identify him. I mean, she, he did it in plain sight. So he, he strangles her. He, he manually strangles her with, um, with a, uh, a wire and until she's dead, and he steals all of 85 bucks. So it doesn't seem like he's, he's very impulsive. Um, he doesn't think things out very well. Or maybe he thought that she had a lot more money than he, than he, um, than he anticipated. And of course, she has $85. That's his first murder. And it was pretty... It was pretty cold-blooded because this was a woman who thought of him as a, a friend, almost, you know, as a as someone that she, she had affection for. And when he was robbing her, at first she didn't believe it, and then she said, you know, I would, paraphrasing, but I would give all of my money away to you. I just don't want to believe that you're actually doing this. So, it, you know, he kind of found the person that, 
was vulnerable and that she would let him into the house and um it's just, it's so terrible to think about you know the, this woman that trusted him and and this is what he does you know yeah it is absolutely cold blood uh he knew these people he decided to kill them um at least in her case and she cared for him um it's hard to describe or to even um understand what he was thinking at that time. But I think he had a lot of issues with, you know, authority figures. Um, and as I said, he chose elderly people. And I think it's because of his opportunity to overpower them quickly. Uh, but he didn't stop there. I mean, within uh, a few months, he does it again. And once again, it's an elderly person. This time the person's 83 years old. Uh, and this was a male, Arthur Jennings. And I believe the date was August the 18th, 1980. And he just simply knocks on the door. And this gentleman opens the door and immediately Mason pushes the door open and the older gentleman falls back, hits his head and injures his spine. And I guess just out of rage, he, Mason gets on top and starts just punching him and strangles him until he's dead. And again, he steals a ring and $16, $16 to $20 a tip. There's, it doesn't seem that these are, you know, things he coveted or he wanted. It doesn't seem like that in any way, shape, or form is uh, the motivation behind these killings. But, but they're all murder robberies, and, and but there's always the intimacy of, or at least that's what he described, of strangling someone. And that's that's a really personal thing. If you shoot somebody from distance or you shoot them with a gun, it's less personal. When you actually strangle a person, that um, that shows a different type of killer. It seems to lend some credence to the serial killer classification, though, because maybe it's not about the money. But, you know, I, I do think, I agree with you, but, you know, if he's if you're killing someone for $2 bill. I mean, is that at some point, maybe you're just doing it because you want to kill people. Yeah, that would give, that would raise your eyebrow. Definitely. But I, I, I again, I, because I knew him, I knew how impulsive he was. Uh, I believe that it had to do with him thinking, hey, this guy's got to have money. He goes in there and finds out there is no money. But he, it's too late. He's already committed the crime. Um, that's the best explanation I can come up with because uh, it's hard to get these type of people to talk. I didn't talk a whole lot to him. So I have just basically gone from what I know about him and just, again, just looking at how he is, how young he was, there seems to be an impulsiveness to this instead of a lot of planning. Yeah, yeah, totally. Um, so at some point he kills his cellmate, but... In between there, um, what's the next crime that we want to get to? Well, the next crime is, and again, I apologize if I get the name wrong, um, Antoinette Brown. She's also a 75-year-old woman. Uh, but her was a little bit different. He robbed her, obviously. But there is evidence that he tortured her because she had cuts and bruises all over her body. And then... He strangles her with a with a knotted uh, rope or 
and, uh, and he steals her purse and her rings. Um, I don't know the amount of money he took from her, but you definitely have a type here, which is, which goes back to the serial killer thing. Elderly person living alone, um, living in the same town, so he probably knew the person, or had he, or he, he researched her, for lack of a better term. He scoped her out. He, he sat back and watched, so he knew these people. So yeah, so this is the same thing, but then he, he goes, he veers off a little bit. On November the 27th, 1980, he kills Robert Groff. He's 55, but he's also his male lover. Yeah, I did some reading in this situation. I couldn't get a handle on it, so I'm I'm interested to hear your perspective. So why don't we pick that up? Yeah. Hey, uh, yeah. So this is some you know 2020 TMZ salacious level stuff. Uh, there's his much older male, I guess his boyfriend, uh, if you want to call it that, and. As much as I don't really like to think about herpes, when I when I hear that word, you know, there's a scandal here. So I'm <laughs> I'm curious as to what happened. Yeah, this is this is complete strain from his normal activities, and if if nothing else, this is just him being upset. Um, I never spoke to him about this. However. Uh, Robert Groff was his male lover. Uh, dancer David, you know Mason was gay. But he was bisexual. He liked both men and women. But this guy, he he lived with this guy, and from all accounts, he was very upset at this guy for giving him herpes. And from all uh, intended purposes, he did it on purpose. He actually infected him with it on purpose. And Mason just basically wait for the guy went to sleep, shot him in the face, killed him, and then drenched his body in alcohol to slow the decomposition and wrapped it in blankets. I don't really understand why he did that, whether that actually would help the slow decomposition, but ultimately he stole his jewelry, he took checks, he attempted to forge the checks, and... Um, the reason we know he did this crime, and there was some speculation as to whether he did it or not, Mason confessed to this crime. Asked to, and, and he also confessed to all the other crimes he did as well. And this is one of the reasons that the papers, as well as law enforcement, began calling him a serial killer because uh, of a, an audio cassette that was... Um, forwarded to the police department by his family and we'll get into that in a moment but so that's yeah that, that Dave, uh, Robert Groff was his lover and he killed him as well so why would I don't need mean to get hung up on something kind of trivial but he infected him with herpes sort of out of vindictiveness as if maybe he were cheating on him or to, as a an exercise in branding I, why would someone I mean obviously he wasn't a this guy was not a stand-up individual, but uh, that would lead to some rage. Yeah, that's, that's a, <laughs> yeah, that's, uh, I can only think of is just complete rage mm -hmm. uh, that he, he was disrespected in this way. Remember, Mason did time in prison prior to this, and he's been awarded the state of California. There are certain rules, there are certain 
uh, lines you don't cross. And in prison, you it doesn't matter if someone steals, steals a million dollars or 10 cents from you. It's disrespect behind it. It's that you stepped on someone's toes. I would be willing to bet that Mason felt that this guy disrespected him, stepped on his toes, and his only alternative was to, well, to kill him. Yeah, I mean, if someone gave me herpes, I'd, I don't know if I would kill them, but I think <clears throat> we'd have words for sure. So before we get to his manifesto, I, I just had this question. Um, we know that the kind of prison ethics that, you know, raping women and molesting, raping and killing children is uh, highly frowned upon. Is there any distinction for, you know, frail old, you know, just elderly, for the elderly, you know? Uh, for the most part, unless the elderly is a serial killer or a child master, they're left alone. Uh, there's not too much... Um, well, no, I mean, I mean, if, if your victims are helpless, you know, old, just old people, old grandmas, oh. and stuff like that. Yeah, no, because, and I, I think I've explained this to you before, the mentality is, it's business as usual. You were doing a crime, the person got in the way, and they did what they had to do. There was no sexual, um, you know, forced rape or... So people don't really look at it that way. He was never looked upon as being different or weird because he killed elderly people. Now, I'm sure there's people that looked upon that and frowned upon it a little bit, but not to the point where someone was going to do something to him. I see. Um, so... I mean, it's really, it's kind of a twisted kind of code, and I, you and I have discussed this before, but it, it is twisted. I mean, think about it. You, if you rape a woman or a man or a child or anybody, you're pretty much marked for death. If you're a serial killer, you're marked to death. But if you kill an elderly person, man or woman, it doesn't really matter because it's not a child. And that's just the way the particular code in prison has existed for as long as I can remember. Um... I didn't invent the rules, but those are the rules. Yeah, well, it makes sense. I mean, to some degree, what is elderly? I mean, are we talking, you know, senior citizen, discount at the movie? You know, at some point, it, there's less of a line. And frankly, if you have to kill someone, it's better to kill an old person than a, a young person, as, as weird as that sounds. Um I'm sure there's going to be people frowning upon that. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, hey, you can do that because you're 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 actually responding from your gut. This is what you're saying because yeah, a person that's older probably has less to live for. I mean, live longer, and I don't know. And it's some twisted mentality that, but really, in prison, it's not about that. It's just, um, you know, now they, they they check your paperwork, what you're here for, and if you have a rape or you've harmed a child. You know, you're done. I mean, let me go off subject here for a moment and just touch on this. There was a guy here in Marin County who ran over a, a small child, a girl. And he was not a molester. He was not anything. He never had a crime in his life. He was drunk. He came to San Quentin and he came out to a yard and they killed him. And they killed him because he harmed the child. Now, I know manslaughter, vehicle manslaughter, drunk driving is not the same thing as actually murdering a child or... But the end result was that you harmed the child, whether by force or by accident. And and that particular yard, on that particular day, the guy that was there, 
did not agree with it, he killed him. That's crazy. Wow. I mean, I guess yeah. they, they have uh, a code, like you said. <laughs> That's because he didn't yeah, even do no, it on purpose, serious. but and still, the, he did. He did kill a child, technically. Yeah, and in a lot of cases, these guys, depending on how much of a fundamentalist is he, or how much of a, a purist he is when he comes to those codes, some of these guys take that stuff extremely serious. And uh, yeah. Wow. So, so, so we have one more, one more victim, which in that work he committed while he was out, and that was on December 6, 1980, Dorothy Lang. And again, uh, Dorothy Lang was elderly, and he, um, he entered her home. He hit her over the head with a crescent wrench, and then he, um, she was found to have many contusions and broken ribs because he was kneeling on her chest, as well as cuts and bruises. Um, but she was still alive. Um, so he again, he uh, strangled her to death and stole all her rings and her pins and her earrings. Um, not sure the exact amount of money that he got from that, but Dorothy Lang was his last victim while on the streets. Yeah, and then he was, if you want to talk about how he was apprehended, kind of, mm, I would say in dramatic fashion, and, and he had a, a manifesto. <laughs> Which is, I'm sorry, it's not funny, but yeah. I, I just, uh, I don't get the point. <laughs> yeah, I think I think he was very confused. I, honestly, you know, now after so many years of thinking back, the things that he said, some of the things I observed. Um, but yeah, the, the manifesto, the, the, the tape, them calling him the cassette killer, uh, it's not like he sent the cassettes and his family um, got him to kind of confess of the murders. And they forwarded to law enforcement. They immediately nicknamed the, ser- uh, the, the cassette killer. And in that cassette, he prophesied that he would die in a blaze of bullets fighting against police. And, but none of that happened. He, he was arrested without incident, really. You know, he just went away. Oh, I thought there was kind of a chase. I mean, he did try to evade the police, I think. But um... Well, yeah, but it wasn't like this rain of bullets that he would, you know, pull out machine guns, like he said in the tape, that he would be fighting him to the death. I mean, none of that really happened. It was basically infantless, and he was taken into custody. And on top of that, he then takes the the officers on a kind of a, a tour of his murder sites and tells them what he did, how he did it, why he did it. Yeah, it, it just uh, it sounds so immature, you know. And I'm not trying to be glib about this, but, you know, this was the... The eighties, I, I, just the him with his dramatic record. You know, it sounds like a guy that watched his first gangster movie, or like he was having an identity crisis or something. I'm not making excuses for him, but when you look at his tape manifesto, like it's it's grandiose, and like you said, none of that happened. Yeah, I I, I think you're absolutely right. He he kind of visualized what it would be like. I, I believe the same way he visualized going into these houses, uh, getting lots of money, lots of jewelry, really making it big, and, and none of this takes place. Um, but and here's another contradiction to him, because he gives, he comes in, he basically just allows them to arrest him. He goes into the jail, 
And while he's in jail, he tries to, to escape three different times. There's three attempted escapes from the county jail. And while he's in the county jail, and this again, is, it, it, it shows just a person with a lack of understanding about consequences. He then murders another guy named Boyd Johnson by, again, strangling him to death. And to kind of cover it up, which makes a, not a whole lot of sense, he carries the body to the shower and then hangs it from a, one of the, uh, the poles in the shower so it looks like he committed suicide. Yeah, but he was also bragging to, like, the the prison guard, essentially, you know, that that he might hurt the guy. So the guy that he um, murdered, this was kind of a, a weird, convoluted story. And, of course, this happened a long time ago. It's hard, it's hard to know what to believe. But per my understanding, this guy was an informant, and he, meaning the guy that was murdered, accidentally got put into this cell due to some clerical error with these, I think five other guys and they knew he was an informant and, uh, yeah. So that's what happens to informants sometimes, I guess. Yeah. I mean, that, that's a bad situation. Putting an informant on record guys, not a good situation, especially in, in those days where, you know, people who, consider snitches were not only someone trying to kill him. And I think here's a perfect example of him wanting to live up to this gangster. Um, I belong in prison. I take care of business uh, mentality. And he, he kills this guy. He, you know, he's, well, him and another guy was blamed for as well, but he was there. He, he obviously committed the murder. And for real, no apparent reason. I, I, I understand the whole mentality that someone is considered an informant but from that step to the the different another step of actually killing the person that's a huge step but again it shows his immaturity it shows um it just you have to look at things from different perspectives the first one is from a normal perspective he obviously was very immature spontaneous he had this vision of grandiose Hey, if I kill a snitch, it'll make me it'll raise my uh, my stock in prison. It's called making your bones. That's what they call it in prison. You make your bones by committing acts of crime for a gang or for whatever, and you kind of your stock rises. And also, as I've mentioned to you before, those that are mostly respected in prison are those with the highest potential to kill another convict, whether it be a snitch or during a war, whatever it may be. So that's one way of looking at it. But the other way of looking at it is the second part of what I talked about, which is was he maybe he wasn't immature. Maybe he wasn't uh, unconscious or didn't understand the gravity of what he was doing. Maybe he knew exactly what he was doing and he thought, well, I kill this guy, my stock rises in prison and I'm on my way to becoming a bit of a gangster or a, a convict. So maybe he did understand it. We're never going to know. I have to speculate, but those are the only two um, roads that you can take in this particular situation with him. And from knowing him, this seems to be the only thing that makes sense. Like you said, it, it does 
seem very impulsive and but at the same time he did it six times and yeah i don't i mean we can't get into a conversation of free will and stuff and obviously he's i mean severely abused i mean i i don't even know if we really gave it the full you know credit for what it was i mean really really weird child abuse and stuff but definitely and obviously the fact that he his crimes or at least one crime stated that he was gay coming to prison i think is very important for him to show everyone that if you mess with me i will kill or i can kill i mean these are things that are all considered because i think he was struggling with it within himself there was a struggle going on and these are the moments when that struggle won over one way or the other and these crimes are committed. Yeah. Yeah. So he's, uh, he's confessed to these crimes and he, uh, is tried, correct me if I'm wrong, for five of them. Um, and he, uh, is convicted. And I know from doing this podcast with you that you've, you've taught me this, which I don't think most people know. I didn't, is that to be sentenced to death, you need to have a special circumstance. And that special circumstance is just about anything that would happen if someone is killed, such as a robbery in this case. Is that right? Correct. There's, there was actually several uh, special circumstances in this situation. The first one being, of course, robbery. And then the second one would be burglary. And then the third one would be multiple murders. Um, those are all special circumstances, each one, and each one makes you eligible for the death penalty during a penalty phase or life without the possibility of parole. And of course, a jury decided that the aggravating outweighed the mitigating, and they um, sentenced him to death. Right. And not to mention, per my understanding, they, they, they seem to make it a point when it comes to killing another inmate. Right. Uh, you know, that's a good question, but um, I don't think the death of the inmate was as the impact wasn't as big on the jury as all the elderly people that he killed for their money. I think that uh, was more of an aggravating factor than the inmate in prison. I see. Um, but I mean, but that is a I, mean, I guess what I what I meant and probably didn't phrase it correctly, but but that is also a uh, a circumstance, right? Oh sure, I'm sure if I was a PAR you listen, you know, he he committed five murders and we put him in prison, we try and lock him up, we try and make him pay for his crimes, and what did he do? He killed another person. I mean that's the argument I would I would use. Right. So that's I guess kind of when you come to encounter the guy. So now he's uh, he's sentenced to death. How did it work with him? I mean, was that talked about? This guy waived his appeals. Is he is he crazy, or was that anything that you kind of heard? Well, yeah. Well, I mean, I remember him distinctly. But during the you know five years that he was working out right next to me, he never mentioned anything of the sort. And then when he did waive his appeals, then it, it became a conversation. Like, what the hell? I mean, what's going on here? A lot of people didn't understand this. And honestly, a lot of people thought he was trying to get attention at first because that's happened. We've seen guys, I've seen guys here on the road who 
in attorneys and the attorneys refuse to help them or come see them and they really don't, they don't feel comfortable, they don't trust this attorney. So they tell the courts, I'm gonna waive my appeals. So court, the court immediately sends a monitor over to find out what's going on. And that's when the guy tells him, look, this attorney won't help me. He, he, I'm innocent or whatever the case may be. He won't come see me. He won't help me with my appeals, which is a no-no. The attorney's obviously supposed to come see the guy, establish trust so the appeal can be launched. So a lot of people thought it was that. But we soon found out that that in fact was absolutely not true. That he just he told a number of people, look, I, I get what I did. I, I, I was wrong. I, I, I caused a great deal of pain. And let me quote him. He says, I didn't have a clue. I was running blind. I didn't understand the pain I was causing the victims' families. If I had understood that, that would have been to be determined. He told this to reporters. He was not in any way, shape, or form trying to get attention. He felt that the sentence of death for his crimes was appropriate. Interesting, because I, I looked at it just from a cynical perspective. I mean, we see these guys, you know, kind of talk a big game. Uh, Robert Alton Harris... Uh, Richard Ramirez, and they, w when they're when they're facing imminent death, especially in the case of Harris, you know he was so brash and he kind of changed his tune. It seemed like at the end, it, it seems like everyone changes their tune at the end. But I was, you know, no one's that cool, you know, no one's that tough. But I was just wondering if there was any element of of bluster in in him essentially giving a middle finger to the whole process, but it sounds like, no, he, he thought that that yeah, was his punishment. Yeah, that's, that's a good point, but I didn't see that. I mean, listen to, to what he said after, um, of course, people wanted to interview him, and they said, well, what do you expect from this? What, what do, you, you know, do you want uh, lethal injection or gas? And he says, I don't see how one way of dying is easier than the other. Dead is dead. I mean, he was really quick about his response, and he didn't want a whole lot of attention, from what I understood. And, um, you know, people questioned him. I mean, the attorneys questioned him. Even the, um, the attorneys for him, they, they had four questions for him before this, because he didn't want to see his attorneys. The first question is, do you... Do you want to speak with me? Um, we make you feel better. Do you want to stop the execution? Do you want me to file an objection or an appeal? Do you need anything? His response is simple. Peace. Thanks, stud. See you. David. He, he doesn't want his attorney to see him. He doesn't want um, anything. He wants to die. And even when it's two minutes before they drop those pallets, and as I said, he was the last guy executed by gas, a federal judge steps in and asks, you know, ask the warden to come to talk to him. Do you want to stop these proceedings? All you have to do is say so. And his response is to the warden, which who was Daniel Vasquez, no warden. I want to proceed. Thank you, warden. I mean, he's really to the point. He doesn't, not, not a lot of open hollering. 
his last meal isn't two buckets of chicken, jelly beans, ice cream, and everything you can think of, he asks for a glass of water. He wants no last meal. Yeah, and, and no uh, making a show of his last words. I mean, I guess, correct me if I'm wrong, but his last documented words must have been no warden, <laughs> thank you, warden. Um, yeah, that's it. Was there any, uh, and you know, this might hit a little close to home, but obviously you can handle it. I, I mean, was there any talk on death row, um, you know, bar talk? Like if I was talking to some friends or just as a, a dumb exercise in conversation, did it matter that it was gas that, you know, I guess you didn't know at the time he'd be the last person executed by gas, but it, you know, it was found to be pretty cruel uh and uh, abnormal whatever the, the language is but did that ever come up or obviously it doesn't really matter at that point i guess well i mean people did talk about that I mean, people are obviously asked me a number of questions guys in the yard say, well how would you like to die you know gas you know beating shots uh electric chair and those questions come up i mean of course they do it's it's, it's human nature to ask those type of questions and I've been in conversations with a number of people that have asked well, how would you like to die and, and I I mean I always kind of I'll be honest it, it scares me so I always said hey old age that's how I want to die <laughs> old age and I've left it at that I honestly don't ever want to think about that um, although I have I've thought about it a number of times and if you're asking me honestly right now I mean yeah I, I, I think that Gas would probably be a lot worse than than an injection, and the electric chair would be a lot worse than gas. And I mean, it hanging would probably be the worst one of all. So, um, yeah, it's, does uh, that I, kind I, of that's something? I, yeah, it's it's so strange. The this situation is is so strange. Um, I mean, does that kind of echo the responses that you hear from from people that you talk to about it? Absolutely. I mean, it's, it's a, it, when those 13, you know, between 1992 and uh, 2005 and six, there was a lot of talk about the death penalty and, and being executed here and something that was always in the back of my mind. But at that, at that time, there was also a lot more danger of you being killed in the yard by another convict than there was of being executed by the state of California. And it's, it's to remind the audience that since 1967, there's only been 13 people executed in California. Now you add that with how many guys have died on death row that are not associated with execution, and you'd be stunned at the numbers. Yeah, yes, you would be. Uh, so, was there any feel, uh, any feeling? Uh, it seems like this guy was not liked, especially, but not hated. And one day he's there, and then you know the next, you realize he's been. Uh, chemically choked to death was there a certain feeling after that or what, what was that like yeah a lot of guys here uh, that I know of liked him they thought he was an alright guy I mean you're among a bunch of killers so it's not like oh wow he's a killer and we can't talk to him but a lot of guys that worked out with him thought he was a solid guy in terms of solid was he wasn't going to tell on you you know, he wasn't a creepy guy, he wasn't a rapist or anything, so they considered him a solid guy. And they 
some of the guys that worked out with him felt bad about it, but they also respected him uh, for taking the route that he took because he, they said, hey, look, the guy, he believed in what he did was wrong, and he, he took that way out, and basically, so they respected his, uh, his actions and his follow-through. Like, in other words, the, the talk was amongst people here, he didn't bitch up. That was the exact words it was, hey, a lot of guys bitch up. They say something, they don't do it. The guy didn't bitch up. That's the end of the story. I mean, you can call it what you want, but he did not bitch up. He... Yeah, I know that's, that was kind of a harsh way of putting it, but I wanted to give the audience an authentic look of how people talk in prison. This isn't a movie. This isn't some pay-per-view, Oz, or TV show. This is California's death row at San Quentin Prison. And in that time, when people talked in the yard, that's how they expressed themselves. Those are the exact words they used. Um, I'm not here to glorify it or anything, but I, I think it's important that the audience understands the mentality, um, how they express themselves, so they get an authentic look at how men in these you know, dire or extreme stressful, extreme, etc. cetera, uh, circumstances react. There's a lot of machismo going on, a lot of boistering, a lot of pounding of the chest. But at the end of the game, this guy did exactly what he said he was going to do. And as they put it, he didn't pitch up. So as in, in closing, they, a lot of guys just kind of tipped their hat to him that he did what he was supposed to do. Yeah, yeah. And... I think it's important to not sugarcoat what's going on. And I don't really think there's another podcast. I mean, I'm, I'm not, you know, trying to be self-promoting here or, or brag about ourselves, but I don't think there's another podcast where you really get those kinds of details and that kind of information. And I, I do think it's important. Um, and I'll spare a whole rant, but you know, this is a, a something I feel strongly about. I think that the state of California has executed innocent people. I don't think it should be happening. And I think it's important for people, whether they <clears throat> support the death penalty or not, to understand what's going on. Does that make sense? It makes absolute sense. And I actually appreciate your feeling behind it. Your, you know, you know, I've had these conversations about your feelings about the death penalty. And I've given you sometimes in, in other conversations a different take on it. But I think that in this conversation, the, your opinion is highly important and that we're authentic and that we give a perspective that most people wouldn't give it here. I think that there's value to that. But I'm, I'm in prison. Um, I make no excuses about that. But that I, what I bring to the table is something that people normally don't hear and there, there is value in that. Now, it doesn't make me a saint, it doesn't make me anything else, it just makes me a guy who's being completely honest, giving a perspective that is not normally looked upon because no one has this type of access. And this is something that we do that whether they like us or not, they're going to get the truth. Yes. Uh, so I have an idea because this one especially bum me out and i have an idea i don't know if it'll work but what i know you read a lot i read probably not as much i don't have but i do read we both read and can we end on a a high note on a on a uh 
something positive is is there something you read recently or just anything to to bring us up before we in the next episode go into another depraved case of a murderer getting murdered (laughs) (laughs) that's actually i've never heard this one before but uh something that i've read that will bring this up you know um well okay i got one for you i'm a big pittsburgh steeler fan Pittsburgh Steelers drafted Nazi Harris out of Alabama, and I'm really happy about that because we finally got a running back who's actually going to do a serious running attack for the Pittsburgh Steelers. And I hope we go to the Super Bowl because this is probably one of Big Ben's last years. Okay, maybe I'll throw 20 bucks on the Steelers. It's got to be about a 13 to 1 <laughs> shot. So I'll, I'll do that on on. Uh... On your behalf. And uh, on Friday, I'm going out on my first uh, sailing excursion without uh, the aid of a very spazzy instructor that wears a harness in the marina. And so I'm, I'm looking forward to that. So anyway, um, I'm excited to talk to you about the next case. I, do we want to tease it or should we just make people wait till next time? Sure, no, that's, that's all you should tease it. And it's, it's a very interesting case because it's... Um... William Bonney, the freeway killer. Um, he was the first person executed by lethal injection in California. And he, for those who like to hear about serial killers, this guy is about as demented and twisted as they come. Um, and that's not to say he's a good guy. He, um, he deserved everything he got. And that's coming from a guy who's actually in prison, well, was in prison with him. So William Bonney, the freeway killer, is our next uh, person up. All right, well, I've been Matt Ralston. And I'm William Nogueira for the Death Row Diaries. Yeah, we'll see you next time. Thank you for listening.